Romans chapter 9, verse 1. I have to do something every service so I can get in trouble on the way home. I tell the truth in Christ, verse 1. I'm not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Boy, that's some speech for a Christian. For I could wish, I could wish, he's not saying he wishes, but he could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Now stop here for just a second. Paul's simply saying how deeply he cares for his countrymen. We all pretty much do. Most people care deeply about the people they grew up with in some way. Most people, right? That's all he's saying. I I could wish that I was separated from Christ for my countrymen's sake. He's saying, I love these people so much. Moses prayed something similar. Moses said, blot me out of your book, but have mercy on this nation. God said, I'm not blotting you out of the book. Everybody gets judged according to his own self. You're not going to step in for somebody else's judgment. So that's all Paul's saying here. He's saying, listen, I care deeply about my, my, my race, my, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the, the promises. What he's saying is, listen, the, the Jews understand more about God than everybody. They have received more from heaven And they're the only nation all these years that has. Of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. Notice he puts that in there. According to the flesh, Christ came. Some people try to elevate the fact that Jesus is Jewish. But really, according to the flesh, he is. But now there's no more Jew nor Greek. In Christ, there's neither male nor female bond nor slave. There's neither Greek nor Jew. We're all one in Christ Jesus. So now there is no more elevating Jesus race that's needed for spiritual life. For historical truth, sure, but not for spiritual life. So we don't ever take a nation and elevate them over any other race of people. Right. Amen. And you'll see it throughout scripture that genealogies, uh, are an enemy to the gospel. Paul said it several times, uh, that genealogies are no more. He said, if you're going back to genealogies and other things, I'm scared of you. The only genealogy, the last genealogy that was important spiritually is Jesus. He had to come through this Jewish line. It was prophesied, and you see Matthew and Luke both take the prophecies and prove he came exactly as he was predicted from the exact family lines, two different directions. Verse five again, of whom are the fathers and from whom according to the flesh Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. But it is not that word of God. It's not that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Now stop there for a second. Not everybody who's of Israel is of Israel. What a way to say it. What he's saying is, and we're going to prove this out tonight. What he's saying is, uh, there are two different types of Israelites. There's two different types of Jews. Not everybody who's supposed to be of Israel is of Israel. There's two types of people from Israel. Israel. 
believers and unbelievers. Okay? So it's not just a blatant blanket that goes over all Israel. No, no, not everybody of Israel is of Israel. Israel, the, the word Israel is prince of God. He shall be a prince of God. Israel was Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. But let's get into it so you can understand that God made promises to those who believe. Those who don't believe don't get the promises. Amen. So verse 6 again, it's not that the word of God has taken no effect for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Turn with me to, well, let's read verse 7 and 8, and then we'll go somewhere. Verse 7, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed will be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. Let's go to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. Through your Christian life, you'll, you'll hear some uh, uh, conflict and argument about, these, about this topic. So I want you to hear some of this because it's in the Bible. It's already explained. And matter of fact, Paul had to deal with it. Paul had to explain it. He had to write letters about it. It was a theological question that many had, an error that many people were making. <clears throat> so uh, here we go. Uh, verse 21, Galatians 4, verse 21. I'm going to try to do it a little bit quickly, but it, let's see if we can do it. All right. Tell me, you who, are, who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it's written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. Okay, look up here. Do you all recall the story that he's talking about? that God made a promise to Abraham, he'd be the father of many nations, that he and Sarah couldn't have a baby, it seemed, for a long time, so he went to Hagar, the maid, and had a baby named Ishmael, the bondwoman. So he had a son through a bondwoman, but even though it came from Abraham, it didn't, it, he was not the promised child. Only through Sarah did God promise for the nation of Israel. So he called it being born according to the flesh. They did something outside the will of God. Anytime you do something outside the will of God, it's in the flesh. Right. If you do it in the spirit, it's of God. And so if he'd have stayed with God on it, he would have only done something in the spirit. But once you create a flesh problem, now it's going to combat with your spiritual. Right. Verse 24, which things are symbolic for these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. Stop there. What he's saying is there's two covenants. First covenant is the old covenant. Second covenant is the new covenant. Two covenants. One came from Mount Sinai. What's Mount Sinai? That's where uh, Charlton Heston got the Ten Commandments. That's where Moses got the Ten Commandments. Mount Sinai. And all the law came from Mount Sinai. That's the first covenant. The first one came from Mount Sinai, and it says which gives birth to bondage. So the old covenant gives birth to bondage. It puts people in bondage. To what? To commands that they can't really keep. That they can only try to keep on the outside, but that their heart is not strong enough to keep on the inside. 
gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. Hagar is the maid that Abraham went to. She's the one that had Ishmael. So Mount Sinai equals the law, equals Moses' covenant, first covenant, equals Hagar, the woman of the flesh. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. So Moses' law, Mount Sinai, the law, the first covenant, Hagar, and Jerusalem that you can look on a map and see right now, is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. Look at verse 28. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. Who's we? Now here's Paul. He's saying, we, as Isaac was, Isaac was the child of promise, He says, we are the children of promise. Who's we? Believers in Christ. He's not talking about being Jewish. He's talking about believers in Christ. But as he who was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. Hagar and Ishmael persecuted Isaac and Sarah. The children of the flesh persecuted the children of the spirit or the children of promise. So it is today. And that's why unbelieving Jews persecute Christians. They did it back then, they killed Jesus. They did it back then, they killed all the apostles. It was the Jews that hated anything that was contrary to the law of Moses, so they killed all the prophets. They killed all the apostles. And today still, if any Jewish person gets saved, if any Jewish person becomes Christian, they are kicked out of their family. They're still doing it. Christians do not ever persecute Jews. Right. Real Christians never persecute Jews. Persecution always and only comes from the flesh. Spiritual, saved Christians never ever would harm any Jew ever. There should be never any anti-Semitism in any real Christian. You'll never find uh, hatred against Jews in any believer's heart. You'll never find it. So all the atrocities committed against Jewish people that history tells us was done in the name of Christianity, it was from false Christians, liars, either unsaved or clouded or demon-driven people that claimed Christ had no clue what they were doing. No real Christian has any anti-Semitism in them whatsoever. So all of the jokes about Jewish people, never do Christians partake in that. It's an undue persecution against Jews that comes from the devil and the world, never from believers. The Jews might persecute us, we would never persecute them. And we don't even hold it against them when they do persecute us. We just take it like a man. I mean, excuse me, take it like a Christian. We just turn the other cheek. They killed Stephen, they stoned Stephen. Stephen said, don't hold it against them, Lord. Kill Jesus, don't hold it against them, Lord. If they tried to kill you, don't hold it against them, Lord. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. God cast out Hagar and Israel, I mean Ishmael. 
He cast out Hagar and Ishmael. He also cast out unbelieving Jews. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Hallelujah. Skip down to verse. Uh, go, back, go back to uh, Romans chapter 9. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step through a couple things in the next three chapters. Because at this point, Paul is going to explain some things. And it begins with this whole idea that the Jews were God's chosen people. But because some didn't believe, they were chopped off. They were cut off. They were cast away because they didn't believe. And then he's going to explain how to really be saved. This is where we find Romans chapter 10 in these three chapters. Romans 10 is a great theological chapter on how any human being can be saved. The only way any human being can be saved is found in chapter 10. And then chapter 11, he, he, he explains further about belief versus unbelief and what it means. But it's all in the context in this book about Jews not believing or some did believe. And then God had a plan for them. And so you'll see some things about predestination, which I don't want to get into tonight, but predestination and how God has called and God has called a remnant and he always reserved a remnant. And so he knew that there would be some people that believe, but the rest got cast away. So let me just kind of skip to a couple important scriptures so that we can feel the framework tonight. Verse 30, what shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. So the Gentiles were not trying to obey the Ten Commandments, but they got righteous anyway. Without even trying to be law followers, they became righteous by faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. The Jews thought they were trying to be right with God. They were. They were trying to be right with God following the law of Moses, but they didn't ever reach righteousness. They never attained to the true law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. Remember Jesus said that many times, that the Jews were going to stumble, that God had set before them a, a, a rock of offense and a stone of stumbling. Like the Jews thought that it was all about Moses and the law, and then here comes Jesus, and they stumbled over the death of the Savior. They stumbled over the words of the Savior. They didn't understand that he was bringing them the new covenant that was promised in the old covenant. As it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Chapter 10, verse 1, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Here you find Paul, remember he said, I, I got this heart for my, my countrymen, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He says, my prayer for Israel is what? That they be saved. Paul says, my prayer for Israel is that what? They be saved. That means that they believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah and be saved and born again like all of us, like him. So his prayer for Israel was for their salvation of their souls. I think we should follow him because he was born again, spirit-filled, and followed Jesus. We follow him in how to pray for Israel. 
Verse two, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Got it? So again, he's showing the contrast. You can't be a law of Moses follower and become righteous. You must only receive Christ and then that ends the law of Moses. Go to chapter 11, verse 1. I say then, has God cast away his people? So are are we saying God's cast away Israel? No. Paul says, certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Stop there. What's he saying? He's saying, has God cast away Israel? No. He said, I'm an Israelite. He can't cast away me. But he has cast away unbelieving Israel. He has cast away all unbelievers, even if they were born in the nation of Israel and are Jews. That's who he's cast away. He hasn't just blanketed it and said, I'm casting away all my people. No, he's casting away those who did not receive the Messiah, his son. Anyone who does not receive the son is not in the family. God has not cast, verse verse two, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel saying, Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? God said, I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. It's when Elijah thought that everybody was against him. God said, no, 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 no. I've reserved some people that have not gone after false gods. Even so then, at this present time, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. So even so, in Paul's day, he's saying, no, 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 not everybody's been cast away. There is a remnant of believing Jews. Skip to verse 11. We'll we'll cover all the verses later, but I wanted to give this framework so that we can feel it. Is anybody feeling it? Verse 11, I say then... Have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, talking about Jews who didn't believe, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So the way that God put this together, he said, I'm going to send the Messiah to my people, but many of them are going to reject my son. Uh, So then I'm going to give it to the Gentiles. It's like, you don't like your present? I'm giving it to the Gentiles. And that's, you'll see that throughout scripture that uh, first it was to the Jews First, Jesus came for the Jews. His whole ministry was only to the Jews while in the earth. But because many rejected, that was the way God described it. Okay, I'm taking the gift and I'm giving it to the Gentiles. And part of the reason for that was to make them jealous, to help them see, wait a second, I think I might've lost something I should have had. Doesn't always work, but that was the way God pictured this for us. Verse 12, now if... Their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles. How much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I might provoke to jealousy those who are of my flesh and save some of them. Paul's saying, I'll do whatever it takes to get these Jews saved. 
For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root, are ho- the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the tree, don't boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief, they were broken off and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear for if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you goodness, if you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. Okay, stop there. All right, what's this picture? This picture is that there is a family tree. There's a family tree. And do you know who the root and trunk of the tree is? Jewish people feel like Abraham was their father. That everybody came from Abraham. Didn't every Jewish person come from Abraham? Isn't he the father of our faith? Yes, but is he the trunk of the tree? It appeared so in the Old Testament. They didn't know. But now that Christ has come, we recognize that the the mystery's been revealed and it's like, aha, Jesus was always the trunk of the tree. Even Abraham was put into Christ. Jesus Christ has preeminence in all things. Jesus has always existed. The family actually came from Jesus. Jesus did not, in the flesh he did, but in, in the spirit, he did not come from Abraham. In the spirit, he was always there. So he is the vine. Remember, Jesus said, I am the vine, you're the branches. In the Old Testament, he is called the branch or the vine, or we could say in our terms, trunk of the tree, the heart of the tree, the root. There shall come forth a root out of the stem of Jesse. Jesus is the true vine. And if you believe in him, you're a branch. And you're in. And if you don't believe in him, you're cut off. And, and you were a branch, and now you're a, a fizzled out branch. Dried up, dying branch. So all unbelieving Jews were chopped off the family tree. And they're on the ground. But he could, if they believe, he could put them back in. And anybody who stops believing... See, you got taken out of the world, taken out of the heathen lands and grafted into the tree by faith because you believed in Christ. Hallelujah. That's why you're in. That's the only reason you're in. Nobody is saved by their race. Nobody loses salvation because of their race. It's all about your belief. You were put in. Now, if you stopped believing, just chop you right off. If you ever quit believing in Jesus, he chop you right off. That's what he said. Beware. 
Don't, and don't boast against the Jewish people that don't believe. Don't elevate yourself over them in some way. Don't be haughty against them. God can put them right back in as soon as they believe. Then you got to love them. You got to love every, everybody that's in Christ. You got to love them more than everybody that's not. Of course, we love everybody, but don't be high-minded. Don't be haughty. Uh, we're in because we believed in Christ because he died for us. And anybody who believes that can get in and get the blessing. Anybody who doesn't believe that does not get the blessing. They're not in. So I think that's what you see in these chapters. Now, the all Israel shall be saved obviously doesn't mean those who are broken off. He's not talking about, oh, it's just a joke. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save them anyway. But some have used that scripture there to say, don't worry about the Jews. They're all going to be saved anyway. No, no, no. No, no, no. Oh, no. O- only if they're alive when Jesus comes. The only way that an, an unbelieving Jew could be saved and accepted by God is if they're alive when Jesus sets foot on the Mount of Olives. When he comes back the second time, that's when they'll all be saved. They'll see it with their physical eye and they'll all, oh, admit, oh, the Messiah is here. But if they die before that day, they're going to hell. Every unbelieving Jew goes to hell if they die. So let's not give them a second pass. Let's not give them a second way. There is no you know, Jewish purgatory of some sort where it's like, oh, well, God loves the Jews. They got their own special deal with God, their own special. Oh, no, no. Paul just explained here. Even though they were God's special chosen people in the Old Testament, they've been chopped off. Now, it'll be glorious if any Jew gets saved. He's saying, hey, man, it started with them, man. They know more than you anyway. Well, Orthodox Jews might know more of the Old Testament than you. But we who are saved now, we got it. Now we see clearly. But let's not act like, oh, the Jews are fine because God loves the Jews. No. No, no, God loves everybody who loves his son. Scripture actually says that. He loves those who love his son. And if you don't love his son, you're out. All right. Pretty exciting, right? It's exciting because Jesus is extremely valuable. He's He's of utmost value. For the entire human race, he is of utmost value. There is, there is nothing bigger than Jesus, nothing more important than Jesus. Praise the Lord. Uh, go back to uh, chapter 9, let's see here. Okay, now let's maybe take a couple steps into um, this other theme. Do we have enough brain power tonight for another theme? Okay. Nothing else to do. Now that your flesh is subdued, there's nothing else to do. Praise the Lord. Might as well take all you can get. So verse 8, we ended with the children of the promise are counted as the seed. Then it says, verse 9, for this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, uh, even by our father Isaac, for the children not being born nor having any 
done any good or evil that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works but him who calls. Uh, I'm going to move on from that. Uh, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now, some people really don't like that scripture that it says God hated Esau. Well, you'll see that God hates several things in the Old Testament. Uh, six things the Lord hates, and seven are an abomination to him. He, he does use the word hate a bit, and it refers to some, uh, to some contrariness to his plan, to his will. An abomination. These six things the Lord hates. Remember that? Seven are an abomination to him. So he hates these things, which is a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a a heart that devises wicked things, feet that are swift and running to evil, those who uh, sow discord among the brethren, a false witness who speaks. He hates these things. A false witness who speaks lies. He hates those things. Uh, And then we know he hates divorce and Uh, You'll see some other places where he hates things. And it has to do with an abomination. He hates false idols, right? Is it okay that he hates false idols? Why does it say he hated Esau? Remember, Jacob and Esau were brothers. And Esau was hungry one day, so hungry that he sold his birthright for some insignificant amount. Sold his birthright. For, for nothing, for just a, a meal. Well, why was that such a big deal to God? God didn't have anything against Esau personally. It was the fact that Esau did not understand how valuable a birthright was. How valuable an inheritance that was passed down was. He, he despised something very holy to God. You see through the Old Testament that the firstborn got the inheritance very, very holy. Uh, and so Esau despised his birthright and it was just completely contrary to God's plan. Well, maybe you don't feel the same. It's like, oh, well, he should have just loved him anyway. Yeah. Well, that's how you are. But God sees very holy things, and they're important to him. So that was a big deal to God that Esau did that. Even though he was tricked, basically. <clears throat> Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. So that's the next question. Like, oh, I thought God was, uh, loved everybody. Well, he does love everybody. But there are certain things that become enemies to God. So we're not talking about God being unrighteous. Don't go there. You have to give God a little leeway here that he can hate evil just like you're supposed to hate evil. And to him, evil has its own criteria. To you, you think evil is just murder and bad things that go on. And well, No, but to God, there's some holy things that he would define as evil going against them. Verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy and I'll have compassion on whomever I'll have compassion. So then it's not of him who wills nor of him who runs, but God who shows mercy. Verse 17, for the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this purpose, I've raised you up that I may show my power in you that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills, he hardens. Stop there. This is another difficult passage for a lot of people because it's like, wait a second, it looks like God just decides who he's going to have compassion on. I thought it could be compassionate to everybody. Uh, and then it says, he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills, he hardens. God hardens people that he wills. Like he just decides who to harden and he just decides who to have mercy on. Well, look at it this way. God knows the end from the beginning. So he knows all of you. He knew all of you would receive Jesus. The day you were born, before you were born, he knew you'd receive Jesus. You could say he had mercy on you. 
Can't you see where he had mercy on you? Can't you see in your psychological life, your inner life, can't you see where he had mercy on you? And when you believed in Jesus, he saved you. Even though you know the rest of you, he had great mercy on you. So once you're saved, you can look back and say, wow, he, he had mercy on me. Wow. It wasn't some pre-programmed thing because you know what you did on the inside. You know the decisions you made. You know the feelings you had. You know the commitments you made. You know the, the real uh, receiving of the Son of God that you did in your own heart. You know what that was, don't you? So let's not say it was just pre-programmed and I'd have done that anyway, because it was very complex. It was highly spiritual and God did have mercy on us. So you could say, now you're chosen. You were chosen before the foundation of the world to walk with God. Isn't that wonderful? Now you could take a look at the, the people that aren't saved, that, that don't believe and that will never believe. Atheists and hardened heathens that never receive God, never believe in Jesus. You could say, well, he hardened them. He, he softened you and he hardened them. Whomever he wants, he can harden. But is it really God pre-programming hardness? Or is it that God knew who would be pliable and who would resist? Since he knows the end from the beginning, can't we say that it's possible for God to create all humans based on his own will, knowing fully some will believe in Jesus, some won't? Some will be pliable to God's will, some won't. Couldn't we say that he knows the end? And that's really how it is. He knows the future without causing the future. Because if he's causing everything, then we're just robots. Then none of your decisions were significant and meaningful. You choosing God was not significant or meaningful. You, I would just do whatever. I'll. And some people have turned away from God saying, well, if he wants me to be saved, I'll be saved. But I don't have to do anything about it. Whole denominations have been created by people that said it's all up to God. You don't have to even preach the gospel. Why would there be so much instruction and command if it was all up to God? So let's not go that way. Let's not go that far. Let's, let's allow God predestining things based on what he knows is going to happen. He knows if you're going to be better. I mean, <laughs> he knows if you're going to have a hardened heart be lifted up in pride. You see it throughout the Old Testament. And here, even in this chapter, even in this passage, he mentions Pharaoh. Because if you recall, the Bible says several times that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Moses went and said, let my people go. And then Pharaoh said, fine. And then God hardened his heart. The next morning he says, no, you can't go. And he said it a couple times. It's like, wait a minute, why is he hardening his heart? Well, because that's what Pharaoh wanted. So we can say it this way. Pharaoh, uh, was stiff-necked against God, did not want the people to go. His heart truly did not want them to go. So God said, okay, you can have that. I'll harden your heart. That's what you want. So you have to look at it as God gives you what you want. He's a gentleman. Uh, he, he honors your free will. He honors the choice system. He allows you to choose. He sets before you two options. He did it in the Old Testament. Here's the law. Choose life or death. Choose the blessing or choose the curse. You can, it's your choice. He didn't force them. He knew what they would choose, so you could say it was predestined. On the other hand, he did not force his will to come to pass upon anybody. When he finds a hardened heart, he will sometimes take that hardened person and use them to do something in the earth so his glory can be manifested. That's what he did with Pharaoh. He hardened Pharaoh's heart so that Moses could show the signs. 
so that God could do the miracles amongst the people so they would understand that their deliverance from Egypt was all God. When he finds a hardened person, he can use that person and, and then somehow cause glory to come. So you have to, you have to give him some leeway for that. God knew Adam and Eve were going to sin, didn't he? Did he make Adam sin? Did he make Eve sin? He knew exactly what was happening before he created them. But he didn't cause it, did he? There's no way that you could say God caused Adam and Eve to sin. But he let them. God knew that Cain was going to kill Abel. Did God create Cain to kill Abel? Did God decide I'm going to create this evil brother so he can kill his brother? No, no, you can't say that about God. So you have to recognize he created Cain and Abel. He knew exactly what was going to happen ahead of time. Cain was hard. Abel was not. Abel was a man after God. Cain was not. Cain got kicked out. God knew this was going to happen. Did God cause that to happen? No, it was Cain's choice. Cain had a hardened heart. Cain had a, something strange in there that God didn't put in there, but God knew was going to be in there. Make sense? Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Or why, who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay? From the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared before glory, beforehand for glory. Even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. He says in Hosea, Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and who beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you're not my people, they'll be called the sons of the living God. So he's quoting some scripture about the remnant, about the Gentiles getting saved, etc., etc. It's the... So that's the context of all these three chapters here. But here he's saying these other hard, hard words to behold, right? Uh, he's, the, he's the potter, we're the clay. Who are you to say how you are? So you take, you take people that are conflicting against God or against God in some way, and they're like, well, he made me like this. Well, he knew you were going to be like this, so yeah, he did. He's the one that formed you in the womb. He's the one that gave you breath. Uh, so you could say, yeah, he made me like this, but really it's because your decisions. Only God can do spiritual stuff in there, right? Like if you want to be born again, only God can make you born again. So you choose Christ, he makes you born again. Born again. You resist Christ, he makes you hard. Only God could do a psych something on the inside of our inner man. Isn't that right? Only God could be in charge of that. And he does it based on the button you push. Is that a way to see it? Uh, let me show you a couple of scriptures. Um, I'll just quote these. John 6, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I'll raise him up at the last day. It's like, well, it looks like God just arbitrarily chooses. No, he chooses based on who he, who wants him. He knows who's going to want him. John 6, 65. Therefore I said to you, no man can come to me except it were given to him by my father. Look at Luke chapter 8. Turn to Luke chapter 8. Verse 
Luke chapter 8. This is the parable of the sower according to Luke. And uh, I'm going to jump in here. Verse 14 says, the ones that fell among thorns, the word that fell among thorns, are those when they've heard go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life and bring no fruit to maturity. Verse 15, but the ones that fell on good ground are those who having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. King James says, with an honest and good heart. Those with an, the good ground is those that have an honest and good heart. You follow me? So the word is preached to everybody, but those that have a good and honest heart or a noble and honest heart, keep the word and bring forth fruit. See how it's your heart that is the receptor of God's word. Another scripture over in Acts chapter 16, a little term, terminology is used. It says, uh, this is Lydia, one of the first disciples in the book of Acts, uh, individual. says, now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. The Lord opened her heart. She had a pliable heart. She had a good and honest heart. The Lord opened it so that she could receive the gospel. Just the terminology that God uses. He does it based on our choices, based on what he knows to be true in our hearts. Uh, here's some other scriptures from the Old Testament. Second Chronicles 36, don't turn there. Second Chronicles 36, 13. Uh, this is about King Zedekiah took over when he was 21 years old. He did evil in the sight of God. He rebelled against the uh, the other king who had made him swear an oath by God, but he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. So here it says a person stiffened their neck and hardened their heart. So the person can harden their heart. And then God says, okay, here's your hardened heart. Job nine talks about God is wise in heart, mighty in strength. Who has, who has hardened himself against God and prospered? So it's really the person that hardens themselves against God. Daniel chapter five says, but when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was disposed from his, deposed from his kingly throne. They took his glory from him. <clears throat> Remember in the gospel, Jesus said his disciples had hardened their heart after the miracles. They saw the miracles, then they hardened. He goes, is your heart still hardened? Remember that a couple times? <clears throat> Turn to 2 Peter. We'll end with this just so you can feel it. 2 Peter. Remember the scripture in Revelation 22? Uh, Whosoever will, let him come. Whosoever will, let him come. God protects your rights. He gives you free will. You get to choose. You get to choose every day. You get to choose Christ or not, but you get to choose every day to walk with God or not. He's never forced you to do anything, has he? Oh, uh, where, where am I going? That's over there by... First Peter. <laughs> Second Peter chapter three, verse nine. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men, some men count slackness, 
but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So here, the, the Spirit of God expresses the will of God. God doesn't want anyone to go to hell. No, he wants no one to perish. He has not created people to perish. No human soul has ever been created to perish. But because he knows what their choices will be, you could say, well, he's prepared them to perish. He didn't want them to. He wants everyone saved. But because he knows everything, yes, you could say they're headed for hell. Of course, we don't know. Only God knows. So we preach to everybody and try to turn everybody. And that's how a lot of people get saved. Well, that's how everybody gets saved. If we don't do our job, people won't get saved. People say, well, you know, if that person is destined to be saved, then they'll get saved. I don't need to do anything. Okay, let me start over. God knew you were going to say that. So he's not going to use you to help them get saved. He'll use somebody else to get the gospel to them because he knows how ridiculous you are. First Timothy chapter two. First Timothy chapter two. Verse three or verse four, verse three, first Timothy two, three, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Notice that. First of all, we love that second part that says there's one mediator between God and man. It's not the Pope. There's no saint. It's not married. One mediator between God and man. One mediator. Only Jesus Christ between you and the Father. That's it. That's it. No preacher, no pastor, no priest. Uh, nobody is between you and the Father. You go straight to the Father. And you can only go straight to the Father with Jesus Christ. You can't go with any other means. No Buddha, no Muhammad, no other means. No other religion, no other thoughts, no other uh, uh, steps, no other sacrifice. Nothing can get you to God. Nothing, nothing, nothing. There's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. Verse four, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Notice he desires all men, all men. God wants all men to be saved. He doesn't want anybody to be hardened. He doesn't want anybody to go to hell. He doesn't want anybody to reject Christ. He wants all men. He desires all men to be saved. This is what keeps us having mercy on every human soul. Every human soul we have mercy on. Now, if they reject Christ, we can shake the dust and not have to deal with them anymore, but we care about every human soul. Amen? Amen? Amen. God loves every human soul, cares about every human soul. Hallelujah. All right. We'll close for tonight. All right. Now we're further. I do want you to understand how chosen you are. Jesus said, you did not choose me, I chose you. You're chosen. You're chosen. Listen, you, if you want to feel special, go ahead and feel special because he chose you. Listen, he chose, there's some quality, there's something in your heart that he chose. You because, he chose you because there's something that's open to God in your heart. That's special. And he chose you even though you got problems. You know you. 
and yet he chose you. Come on, you got to feel special about that. You got to know that this is a big deal. Jesus said, you're not my servants, you're my friends. He chose us to be his friend. He, he, knows, he knows what's in you. Even the surface is a little strange. Man, he knew what was in you. And he chose you. That's special. Special. Isn't that wonderful? Don't you wish everybody knew how special you were? But this is where you find your true identity as a Christian. It's in the fact that he knew your heart was going to be pliable. He had mercy on you. He knew you. He was pouring out compassion the day you were born. Isn't that wonderful? Thank you for joining Pastors Chaz and Joni today from Houston Faith Church. If you're looking for a good home church in Houston, Texas, we'd like to invite you to be our guest anytime. What you'll find is that Houston Faith Church is highly committed to the Word of God, the love of God, and the Spirit-filled life and ministry that Jesus expects. We know that everyone wants to make a difference in this life and that the Great Commission of the Lord Jesus Christ is the main thing for all of us. You'll find your purpose here and grow strong in faith at Houston Faith Church. Find more faith-building resources on our YouTube channel or subscribe to our free audio podcast. You can also connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. See you soon.